We're continuing our sermon series in this book. We've been at it for quite a while now, in chapter 11. We've been in chapter 11 for a while, too. We've been, uh, we slowed down here a bit in our pace, and we've been looking at examples, models of faith for us from the Old Testament. These models are given to us in Hebrews to encourage us to imitate them in our faith. So uh, they're models showing what faith does in a person's life. And we've seen that they show us many different things, you know, such as um, doing, uh, tr- trusting God for, for righteousness is one of the first things that we saw. Or taking heed to God's warnings. That's what we saw with Noah. There's different things that are brought out that faith does when it believes what God has said. Last week, we finished the examples from the patriarchal period with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and also Joseph. He was the one we did last week, the last one. Today, we come to one of the greatest figures of the Old Testament. That would be Moses, the lawgiver. And uh, he's, uh, we'll have a lot to say about him uh, today and uh, carry over into the next week and perhaps the next. Uh, we'll begin... With, by reading in Hebrews 11:23, and we'll go over to verse 27. So Hebrews 11:23 through 27. So I uh, encourage you to give attention now to the word of God as it is read before you. Hebrews 11:23. By faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child, and they were not afraid of the king's command. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he looked to the reward. By faith, he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Thanks be to God for his holy word. May he... Use it richly in our lives. What we see in this passage is the development of faith in a covenant child. First, we see the faith that Moses had as an infant. And then we see the faith of his parents that was joined, associated with that faith. And then we see the faith that Moses had as a young man when he reached the years of maturity. We have a lot of children in our church. We have a lot of little children. We have a lot of children that are on the way. And we have a lot of children that are at the age where they're becoming young adults and beginning to go out on their own. And uh, it's, it's, a very, it's a very important time for considering this subject before us today. So let's begin by looking at the faith of a covenant child at birth. By faith, Moses, when he was born. This indicates that Moses engaged in an act of faith when he was born. We have this formula all the way through. It's people, by faith, so-and-so did thus and thus. And it's an act of faith. All the examples that we have seen, or almost all of them, uh, so far tell us what individuals did by faith. Almost all of them are active rather than passive By faith, Cain offered a more acceptable sacrifice. He did something. He was active. By faith, Noah built an ark. By faith, Abraham left his homeland. There's uh, one other example there that's more passive. It's about Sarah, that she received strength to conceive seed. But for her, it it was her act of trusting in God in order to do that. With Moses, you see, it says that It's a passive thing. He was hidden. He did not hide himself, but he was hidden by someone else. He was a newborn baby. He was not capable of being aware that he needed to hide himself or or anything of that nature. He was hidden by his parents, we're told, but it's by faith that Moses was hidden. His parents carried out the act of faith But it is attributed not only to them, but also to Moses. 
We see this in Scripture, and it's a difficult thing for us because of the way we think today. We, we kind of grow up in a culture, and everybody thinks a certain way, and one culture thinks this way, another thinks that way. And the things that we all just think, we don't even think about. We're not even conscious that we're thinking about them. And they just kind of come naturally to us. It's almost in the air that we breathe. And somebody says something about, what? What do you mean? And we don't even, we don't even hardly acknowledge that that's the way we're thinking. But we need to bring our thoughts in subjection to the Scriptures where we see that parental faith is attributed to children. It's done so in a very striking way in the matter of circumcision. If you look back a little bit in Genesis 17, not that long ago we looked at it when we were looking at Abraham. In Genesis 17, 10 through 12, the Lord says to Abraham, This is my covenant which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised, and you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you shall be circumcised, every male child in your generations. He who is born in your house or bought with your money from any foreigner who is not your descendant. In verse 14, the next verse, God declares that the male child who does not do this has broken his covenant and is to be cut off. The eight-day-old child has broken his covenant and is to be cut off because he was not circumcised, something that was done to him. Genesis 17, 14. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin, that person shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. Even though it was up to the parents to see that their children were circumcised, if he was not, it was the child who is said to have broken God's covenant. And if he was circumcised, it was the child who is said to have kept God's covenant. And again, this is a foreign idea for us because of the way we think. But we could give many other examples of this kind of arrangement from Scripture. Just one other example from the New Testament is the one that we find in three of the Gospels where the little children are being brought to Jesus by their parents. Luke uses the word for even a little nursing infant that would be sort of like Moses was here when in his first three months. Parents brought their infants to him and he laid his hands on them and blessed them. And not only that, but he declared that of such is the kingdom of God. Now, did those children decide that they wanted to be part of the kingdom when they were infants? No, they were brought by their parents who are part of the kingdom of God. And God had declared that his covenant was made I am God to you and to your children. So yes, these children are there just because their parents brought them. Praise God for that. Who else would bring them? They would not come on their own. Praise God. How else would they have come to Jesus if their parents did not bring them? Jesus had no problem with this and neither should we. Our society is quite disturbed about the whole idea of children being tied to their parents. In fact, we're disturbed about them even being tied to biological realities. We've gone so far. We've, we've gone really radical with this, extremely radical. We are going that way. Not everybody, of course, embraces those ideas. Fewer people than sometimes is, is thought. But, uh, because people say, well, then it's not really them. But it's their parents. See? That, that's, that's, how people, that's how people look at it. But you see, our, our society is in this condition because the air that we breathe today, what I mentioned before, is Marxism. That's really on steroids, I should say. It's not really Marxism. It's Marxism on steroids. Marx had an economic and political philosophy that was revolutionary. The establishment was the thesis, and then the working people were the antithesis, and they would come and 
overthrow the establishment, and then you would have the, the thesis, the antithesis, and then out of that would emerge the synthesis, where things came together in a beautiful and harmonious way. So you had the thesis, and then the antithesis that destroyed it, and then the synthesis arose with a beautiful, new, and better thing. Gradually, this way of thinking took hold of us, and we have seen many bloody revolutions in the last century and a half. Many bloody revolutions have, have arisen where there are revolutions because we're overthrowing the establishment and this is what we're supposed to do, and then something beautiful is going to eventually come out of this. But around the 1960s, this is when it got on steroids, Marx's ideas began to find their way into everyone's homes. And it became part of our thinking that for children to be right, to be what they ought to be, they must revolt from what their parents have given them and form something new. So it became custom, it became sort of the thing that everyone looks for, that a child, if he's really going to be anybody, he's got to break away from his parents and go and form something that's newer and better. Much of this was actually designed into the, the society by educators going all the way back to the late 1800s, people like Hall and Dewey that were uh, forming the whole ideas for public education and everything. And they actually desired to see what later was called a generation gap, that the parents and the children would be separated from each other, and then the state could form this beautiful new society out of the children. So there was a deliberate attempt where before children would find their, their association, they'd find their connections with their family. You know, we're the Smiths and we're the Joneses and we're the, the Phillips. Or, you know, you had the different names. That they, that's who I'm associated with. And then it was changed. No, your association is with your peer group. And this is who you're, you're with the third graders. You're with the eighth graders. And you grow up in that, and then you look at your parents and say, well, my parents are kind of stupid. They don't really know what they're doing. But these are the smart people over here. And you grow up, we're going to form something that's newer and better. And this was encouraged, 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 encouraged. And it became a part of us to where it actually became an expected thing in the family that the children, when they got older, they, they have to, if they're going to be anything, they've got to go out and do something revolutionary. They've got to do something new. And you have, of course, um, you know, you see how the thing has permeated us so much. Whenever there's any kind of a, an election, then what, does the, what do they always say? What is their platform? It's always, we're going to do everything different than how it was done before. There's going to be a new way of doing everything. That's what you call instability. It's interesting because when you look at like ancient Egypt, if, if they, they didn't have elections, of course, but if they did, the person would have said, um, I'm going to do everything that my predecessor did. We're going to have continuity with what he was doing, and we're going to go, go forward with, with his ideas. I'm going to promote that and, and carry it on. But we say, no, we're going to tear everything down, revolutionary, and it's going to be brand new. And so you have all these societies like France and countries and different places where there are revolutions. We're going to break everything apart, and we're going to bring out something that's going to be way better. So sadly, they were successful in getting us all to think that there is something wrong with a child who embraces what their parents believe, even if, and here's the main point, even if their parents believe the truth. There's something wrong with a child that, that would just go along with it. To really be themselves, now whatever does that mean? to be themselves? What does that mean? We talk about that sort of thing. You know, who am I? Am I a male or a female? Am I, what, what is this self thing that we're talking about? To really be themselves, they have to find their own way. Again, even if their parents taught them the truth. And of course, as this philosophy took hold, there were fewer and fewer people who actually embraced the truth anymore. Because if everybody's breaking away and searching for something new, then nobody's continuing in, I mean, we, our human hearts are deceitful and desperately wicked, and there's a temptation there in an acceptable way, so breaking away, doing our own thing. 
we rejected the Lord and his gospel, by and large, more and more. Satan has used this mightily. It's not the only thing that's caused that, but it's something that Satan has used. So our society looks down on children who believe the truth because their parents did. But God, our creator, created us so that children would fully follow their parents. Now, of course, we're talking about before the fall. He doesn't call you a mindless hypocrite for following what is true, like our society does. If you just follow your parents, it doesn't even matter if you've searched it all out, you've studied, you've examined everything, and all that, you're still a mindless hypocrite because you're, you're, you're just doing that because your parents did that. We were created to follow our parents in everything. Think about what it was like before the fall. Parents would have told their little ones about God, what they had learned of Him and His ways, and their little ones would have fully received it. Talking about before the fall. Now, we never got to see that because they fell before they had children. But they would not decide whether it was right for them. Is this stuff right for me? No, it's, it's the truth, and they, they were designed that way. This is a good thing until we fell because children would have continued in the truth that was taught to them by their parents. What a beautiful, stable society that would be, wouldn't it? Just an ongoing walking with God. Now, if you think about it, there are quite a few things that children have no say about. The little things don't even, these, these little things, little children, they don't even get to choose which language they're going to speak. You know, a kid doesn't get to come out and say, you know, I don't want to speak, I don't want to speak English, I want to speak German. They, they can later on, when they get older, they can decide they're going to take up a new language. They, they can't decide what race they're going to be or where they will live. There's all kinds of stuff that they've got no option about. Though they are individuals, they are, what is the individual? He is an individual that came from two people who are his parents and that, were, that is brought up in their home ordinarily and grows up under their tutelage. That's who the individual is. And you see, we've lost sight of that, that this is, this is what we are. So um, they do what their parents do, and God is not disturbed about that. If they're, now, of course, if their parents, now that we're fallen, if their parents are idol worshipers, the little children are idol worshipers, and you would want them to break away from that. But if their children, if, if the parents are worshiping the true God, then the children should continue in the truth, of course. It is for this reason that God has declared in his word that he is the God of us and our children and that he receives them into his kingdom, our little children, with us when they are born, from the time that they're born. Is this something ugly that is forced upon children against their will? No. It is something beautiful that is bestowed on them by our gracious God who redeems us and our children. It is a precious inheritance in the kingdom of grace where there is forgiveness of sins, where there is reconciliation with God, where there is communion with God, where there is eternal life of blessing in God's house. It is only when children grow up twisted in a truth home, like Esau did, for example, and despise their birthright and break away. And sadly, we have many Esau's today that are in the church. When they grow up and say, what is this worthless inheritance that I can't even experience fully until I die? What do I have for this? Esau says, give me that food. I don't care about something in the, something that's going to give me something after I'm dead. What, what, what do I have to do with that? And he looks around and says, who are these misfit people that I'm associated with? You know, the really successful and great people are not in here. They're out there. Not many mighty, not many noble, not many wise are here. They're out there. And so the Esau says, I'm out of here, I'm gone. Sadly, in this fallen world, covenant children 
will be Esau's. They will do that. This is what Hebrews warns about. Earlier when it says, brethren, see, you who are associated with God in his covenant, brethren, he doesn't mean that they're all necessarily true believers, but he says, brethren, take heed, lest there be in any of you an evil heart, an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. You're going to be a revolutionary from what? You're going to break away from what? From, from the nurture and admonition of the Lord that you were brought? You're going to break away from that? That's an evil heart. That's an evil heart of unbelief and departing from the living God. And people have that. And it brings destruction. The way God has arranged things when covenant children do not follow the Lord is that this is a, a chastisement of their parents. Though the parents themselves may be believers, you all know how easy it is for all of us to lose our focus and for your faith to grow cold and for you to become worldly-minded and start to look at the things of the world rather than the things of God as the things that you desire. We could give many examples. Isaac with his Esau, right? That's one of the examples. David, David was told specifically that it was because of his adultery that Absalom and Ammon and some of his other sons rebelled. They were Esau's, they rebelled against God. That's the reason. And of course, some of his sons, like Solomon, followed the Lord and God's mercies. But we have a lovely example here in our text of faithfulness with Amram and Jochebed. <laughs> Did you know their names? I, 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 didn't, I didn't remember their names, but that's Moses' parents. It's not even mentioned in the passage that we read, their names. But that's Moses' father and mother. So let's turn to look at that now. Okay, so we've seen children in their infancy that the parents bring them before God. They bring them to receive circumcision or baptism, to bring them to Christ, and they bring them up in the nurture of the Lord. And he loves that. He doesn't see it as thrusting something upon the children. He sees something as bestowing what he has given to, to the children, and they can grow up in this privilege. So now let's look at the parents in the, in the equation. The faith of Moses' parents is an excellent model for us to imitate. By faith, Moses was hidden three months by his parents. They acted in faith by hiding Moses. We read about it. Pharaoh, who is Egypt's king, was nervous because had these people there that had come in years before that were uh, Israelites or Hebrews. They were God's covenant people who had the promises of God. And God had told them, you're going to multiply really fast. And they were. And he had made them slaves to keep them under control, being afraid that they might try to take counsel against him and his kingdom, that maybe some of the other shepherds that were around the, in other places would come to fight against Egypt and they were shepherds and they'd say, yeah, let's get rid of these Egyptians, we'll join with them. They continued, but so he, he tried to take measures to, by bringing them under rigorous bondage to discourage them so they wouldn't reproduce so much. And we're told that they reproduced even faster because God multiplied them. They continued to multiply like rabbits. So Pharaoh issued a wicked decree that all the male children should be destroyed by the midwives when they were being born. The Egyptian midwives were not willing to carry out this cruelty to their great credit. But the Israelites also were in a bad spot because if they were, they were found to have a baby, now they were told that they had to drown the baby to destroy it. And so it was a very difficult situation for them where they would be in a time when they might be executed themselves. Pharaoh ordered that these male babies must be drowned. Now the act of faith that Moses did, or rather that his parents did concerning him, 
was to hide him for three months. After which they made a little ark for him so they could hide him among the bulrushes. Now perhaps they had gotten a tip that some of the Egyptian officials had come, it's come to their attention that they were harboring this child. But they absolutely refused to comply with the king's command. As it says in our text, they were not afraid of the king's commandment. That doesn't mean that they didn't think that he could destroy their child. They knew that he could do that if they found their, their, their son, that he could kill him. They, they, they hid him, you see. They, they, what, they, they didn't think, oh, we don't need to hide him because God will, won't let him do anything to him. No, they, they, they hid him. But you see, in doing that, it means that they feared God rather than man because they recognized that it would be far worse to disobey God and destroy their son than to put their lives in peril. And so they were willing to put their lives in peril for the, for the glory of God. They concluded that Pharaoh could do whatever he wanted to them. If he killed them, then so be it. They were going to do God's will here. They, li- they would live to please God and they would die pleasing God if they were to die. That's faith. Pharaoh might have the power to kill them, but that was all he could do. He could not destroy their body and soul in hell. This reminds us that those who govern us have no authority to command us to do something contrary to what God has commanded. Moses' father Amram essentially said here, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. So they hid Moses, and then they put him in the ark, the little ark out in the bulrushes, out in the reeds, so that he wouldn't float away. Okay, so he's out there, and he's kind of in the, and also give him some shade, I guess, leaving his older sister out there to keep an eye on him. She must have been dismayed when she was watching him, and she saw Pharaoh's daughter come, take a bath there to take a swim, and uh, in that part of the river, and uh, but her to delight. We read, Pharaoh's daughter had compassion on the little foundling. Clever, resourceful little sister Miriam ran to her when she saw that she was, had compassion on him. And she said, do you want me to get one of the Hebrew women to be his nurse? And you can imagine the Pharaoh's daughter kind of like, uh, oh, oh yeah, you, you know somebody that could do that for me? <laughs> yeah, yeah. And, oh, I, I know just the person. You know, I'll, I'll, I'll go get her. And she said, okay, I'll hire her. To, to nurse this child. And uh, most people don't even know, you know the names of Moses' parents, but uh, Amram and Jochebed. So here they are, uh, trusting in the Lord. Now think about their faith and how integral it was to Moses. If they had not had this faith, if they had feared the king's commandment, they'd said, oh no, we have to give up our son or they're going to kill us. And they'd given up their son. Moses wouldn't have been around. Their faith was brought a blessing for Moses in that very pragmatic way. But it was good for Moses in terms of his faith as well, as we'll see. Faith was the reason they hid him. And we're told the reason. What does it say? Because they saw that he was a beautiful child and did not fear the king's command. Certainly, they had natural affection. I mean, we've got a beautiful child. Like parents, you know, you have a, a child and you say, man, this, this, this child, this child is, is wonderful. You know, it's, uh, but that's not what's in view here, I don't think. They were living under oppressive slavery that was designed to beat them down and discourage them. Now, who would want to bring forth a child in those kind of conditions? Yeah, maybe we won't maybe we won't do this. Parents want their children to be happy with their natural affection that we have. So maybe there was something high, higher beauty that they saw because you know what's going to become of our son here? Well, as covenant people, they knew also that children are made in the image of God. We're capable of things like wisdom and justice, love, holiness, um, praise of God, mercy. We have all kinds of things that we can do. Every human being is constituted with the ability to be a reflection of those characteristics of God in the way that we live. Like, you know, a a tree can't perform deeds of justice or mercy. Human beings can do that. 
Dogs can't even exactly do that. They can maybe help their master a little bit. There's something you might see there. But we are fully constituted so that we can be image bearers of God. But you see, when we're corrupted, we're also capable of being the opposite. Because we can, instead of wisdom and such things, we can display folly, injustice, hatred, ungodliness, and cruelty. At the present time, the church that Moses' parents were a part of was weak and discouraged. And there was probably more folly, injustice, hatred, ungodliness, cursing, and cruelty than there was wisdom, justice, love, holiness, praise, and mercy. So what hope did they have here again bringing forth this son? How is he beautiful in that kind of a situation? Surely the beauty that they saw in their son was that he was a child of God's covenant promise, which they believed. He was an heir of eternal salvation. Here was beauty indeed upon their son from God. No matter what might happen to him in this life, they saw God's beauty upon him because of God's promise to him of eternal life. They believed that God was going to redeem them and their people and that he was going to bring forth a savior by them and for them and for the world. And they trusted God and his promises that they were a part of. They believed that he was going to gather them soon as his people in the land of Canaan. They had faith in God's redemptive promise and they brought their son up with the notion that his inheritance was not in this world, but it was in the promises of God, which would be reflected in this world in the establishment of the church and the people of God, but ultimately were in the city whose builder and maker is God that Abraham had trusted in before them when he was given a promise of the land and didn't get any of it in his lifetime, nor did his own children or his grandchildren, because it was a promise that God had made for the future that would bring blessing in the city whose builder and maker is God that was the ultimate destiny of his people, the ultimate inheritance of his people. So Moses' parents lived not for the world, but for the city whose builder and maker is God. If I perish in this world, it doesn't matter because that is where my inheritance is. It is for this reason that we're told that they did not fear the king's command. The king had ordered the Hebrews to cast their infant sons into the river and their own lives were in peril if they discovered a baby. A baby was, is not an easy thing to hide. But that's what they did. They got caught. They were happy to die because their hope was not in this world. They would be glad to die in God's service. But if God gave them their son, if, if, they gave, if he gave them life, they would seek the kingdom of, that God had promised them with their son and the deliverance from Egypt that God had promised them, bringing them into the promised land. By faith, they were living for the things that really mattered. Okay, so now we've seen the parents. And now we turn to the faith of a young man. By faith, Moses, when he came of age. And what does it mean when it says when he came of age? Well, the word carries the idea of when he became, reached a certain level of, of, of greatness is kind of the, the uh, concept of the word. The idea is that he was mature enough to make significant decisions. No longer would he go where he was taken like a child does, but now he would be determining where he would go. Now he was old enough to decide what he was going to do. As an infant, his acts of faith were passive, done for him by his parents. He was circumcised because his parents circumcised him. But now he was the actor. He was the one that must act. And he had this choice before him, a choice that most of the people in Israel did not have. He had been adopted. We saw that he became the son of Pharaoh's daughter. And he had been given a wonderful Egyptian education with all the privileges. His adopted mother had rescued him. And she had been, it would seem, very kind to him. She wasn't a, a harsh 
lady that he didn't want to be around. She was a tender-hearted lady that had seen him, the baby crying and had taken him and said, I want to take care of this child. Oh, yes, go find a nurse for me. Yes, get, get a nurse for me, please, you know, from the Hebrew women. He owed his, his very life to her. There, there, there was something sweet that she had done. What's more, in the Egyptian court, Moses had every comfort that was available at that time. A lot of wealth, a lot of security, a lot of power, a lot of respect, a lot of prestige. But he also had been looked after by the nurse, by his Hebrew mother that Pharaoh's daughter had hired. And she had told him how beautiful he was. How beautiful he was. Because that's what his parents believed. Not in a vain way. Not, oh, you're so much better looking than all the other kids around. Not like that. She said, you have God's beauty upon you. You have a covenant with God that he has brought us into with an inheritance with God forever and ever. You are circumcised according to the promise of God's salvation. She had told him of the promises that belong to God's people. And Moses listened. He had in his hand everything that Egypt had to offer. And he had from her promises that were given to a people that were being ground in bondage and having to kill all their children, their male children that were born. Moses' decision as presented to us was stark realism. Look at verse 24 to 27 again. By faith, Moses, when he became of age, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. For he looked to the reward. By faith, he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. For he endured as seeing him who is invisible. Moses fully understood what he was choosing. In rejecting Egypt, he was leaving riches and pleasures. Isn't it interesting the the scale that he used to weigh things? Okay, over here we've got Egypt with riches and pleasures. And he was choosing to go with his people, the Israelites. And what did he get over on this side? Affliction. And bondage is what he got on the other side. Reproach, the reproach of Christ. So he had both things in the scale. And he said, which one, which one is better? Even the Hebrew people, they, they were also more coarse than probably most of the people that he hung out with in the court of Egypt. You know, they would, they would not be very friendly toward this guy that had been a prince in Egypt and that you know, was now among them. And we know that, don't we? Because we see how they treated him. You know, they they treated him with contempt. And he found them quarreling with each other. You know, these guys are fighting over something, acting like idiots. And he had to, here's his people. It wasn't like these people, oh, wow, they're so godly. They weren't very godly at that time. They were kind of a mess. A lot of them didn't believe. You know how they dealt with Moses when he came to deliver them. They didn't believe at first and finally convinced him. Then they got mad at him and they kept wanting. That was his whole life with these people. It wasn't that these people are going to be so, so kind to me. No, Pharaoh's daughter was really kind. But these people, what, what's with these people? What Moses had been taught. These are the people that have God's promises upon them. They have the, the inheritance of God. They have the beauty of God in Christ. So why did he make the choice he made? Told why at the end of verse 26. Because he looked to the reward. His choice was extremely rational. In fact, it was the only rational choice. Did he want happiness for a season with the best that the world had to offer? Or did he want eternal happiness with affliction that would come now and reproach? What was a little suffering now compared to an eternal reward? That was his choice. While we look not at the things which are seen, but the things that are not seen. For the things that are seen are temporary, but the things that are not seen are eternal. He made this choice by faith because it says in verse 27, he endured 
seeing him who is invisible. Does that remind you of what we learned earlier about faith? Faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. It's things promised but not yet seen. Or God who we cannot see, yet revealed through his word and scripture. Faith believes what God has revealed. It sees God who is invisible. It sees the reward which is yet future. Believing God who spoke by the prophets, or in Moses' case, who spoke to his fathers. They didn't really have prophets in the sense that he was one. He was the first one that was a writing prophet and everything. But, of course, Abraham and people like that had received prophecy from God. His, so the, what God had revealed to his fathers. Um, so, so he believed what had been revealed. Moses trusted what God had said to his people. Believing God who spoke by the prophets was also the most rational thing that Moses could do. If God has spoken and he's fulfilled his word in history over and over again in the things that he's said, then of course he's to be trusted. He's God. And he's shown himself to be faithful to his people. Now our modern Marxist would say, so Moses was just following his parents. And when he does, what should you say? Say, yes. Isn't it wonderful that he's following his parents who follow the truth? Don't say, oh, well, no, you know, I, I think Moses was, uh, I, I think, he, I think he, he checked out. No, say, isn't it wonderful that he's following his parents who love the truth? We see the same sentiments in him that we see in them. Like them, what does it say? He did not fear the king. He didn't fear the king's commandments or what the king might do to him. He feared God. He'd rather displease the king than displease God. Of course. Who wouldn't? As Sinclair Ferguson says, what parents breathe out, children breathe in. Isn't that, isn't that helpful? If parents are breathing out truth and love for the truth, and love for God, then it is wonderful that their children breathe that in. And if they embrace that and go on with that, isn't that what we're told to do in Deuteronomy 6? And a whole lot of other places? That you love the Lord your God and you teach to your children to love God when they rise up, when they lie down, when they sit in the house, where your whole life is about delighting in God and loving God and serving God. If their parents breathe out discontentment, frustration with God's calling, covetous longings for the things of the world and the riches that they don't have, anxiety about the world, resentment about serving Christ, bitterness for the hardships that they have, if that's what is breathed out, that's what the children breathe in. And unless they repent of their parents' sinful attitude, in which they were nurtured, even if they took them to church and talked about God, they will either shake off their faith or they will embrace it hypocritically. I said, unless they repent of what they were nurtured in. They will either shake it off or else they will embrace it hypocritically. They'll shake off their faith altogether or they'll embrace it hypocritically and go through the motions like their parents. Covenant children, if your parents breathed out love for God and His beautiful inheritance... Don't let our Egypt today make you ashamed for following them. Own it without apology. Say, yes, I follow what my parents taught me because they, know they taught me the truth. If on the other hand, your parents did not breathe out love for God and His beautiful inheritance, what is needed is not revolution, but reformation. It is sheer folly to revolt against the Lord. You reform things, continue on in the Lord. Don't cast out the truth because the truth was not beautifully conveyed to you. Because you look at the church and say, oh, look at the people did that. Oh, somebody wasn't kind to me. Oh, my parent did that. Oh, blah, blah, blah. You go on and on like that. That doesn't change the truth and what God has said and the promises that God has. He's told us that there's going to be people that are not following the truth and that we're going to all be inconsistent in all kinds of different ways. And he's told us that the people of God aren't necessarily all that attractive. We bear reproach with them in the world. That's what he's told us. 
Now, does all this seem too hard for you? Parents, children, does it seem too hard? Of course it's too hard. But what does our faith teach us? It teaches us that we're in a wilderness. And it's hard in the wilderness. But that we have a Savior who came into the wilderness of this world. And who is the bride of Christ? She is the one who leans on her beloved, who brings her out of the wilderness. Remember in Song of Solomon, who is this coming up out of the wilderness, leaning on her beloved? Not only did he atone for our sin and procure perfect righteousness for us, he also gives us new life by the Holy Spirit so that we can love God and so that we can live for God. As we're told in the Song of Solomon, we come up out of the wilderness, leaning on our beloved. His very purpose for saving you is not just forgiveness. It is forgiveness, but it's not just forgiveness. It is to restore love for God and the beautiful ways of God's household into your life. Moses' parents came to him, and for that reason, they, they had been brought, they, they came to God, I mean, they came to God, and for that very reason, they had been brought out of bondage even while they were yet enslaved in Egypt. You can be a slave in Egypt and not be in bondage because you're free in Christ and His promises. The Bible talks about being a slave who is now free in Christ, even though you're still in slavery. They were already delighting in their inheritance and in their beautiful children who were born in bondage because they were heirs of eternal life that God had promised. For them, the coming deliverance from Egypt was greatly desired, being brought out of Egypt, but they already had the greater deliverance from bondage to sin. And because of that, they were able to rejoice in their inheritance, even while they were under oppression in Egypt. Their son Moses followed and chose their inheritance over the inheritance that he had offered to him as a prince in Egypt. J.C. Ryle says that the greatest sacrifice that he can see of anybody made in the Old Testament was the sacrifice that Moses made when he forsook Egypt in order to go into affliction with the people of God. But he got more riches from that than can be conceived. And so will you if you go forward in the truth in Jesus Christ. He is the one who gives us an inheritance with God forever. Please stand and let's, let's call on his name. Oh Lord, how we thank you for the mercies and the blessing that you have given to us as your people. You have promised us and our children an inheritance in your household forever and ever. And we thank you, O oh Lord, that by your gracious working, that you preserve us and keep us in that inheritance. And we pray, O oh Lord, that you would help us and help our children, that we would go forward, Lord, in the grace of God that we would receive your promises. Lord, I pray that we would have that, that key thing that Moses' parents had, that we would see the beauty of your people, the beauty of those who are set apart to you, even when they're miserable slaves under bondage and affliction, to see what you have promised and to identify by the promise rather than by the present condition. We thank you, O oh Lord, that we have hope and that we can look to you to fulfill all that you have spoken. And we pray that we would not grow weary in well-doing, but that we would delight in what you have promised. We looked last week at Joseph and how he had more suffering than Jacob did, really. More that he could have complained about, more that he could have stumbled over. And yet, he walked through all of his affliction in communion with you, trusting in your promises. And we see Moses' parents were like that too. We see, of course, Jacob, who was not so smooth, who often brought trouble upon himself by his own folly. And yet we see that your hand in his life was faithful, that you worked in him and you refined him, so that when he died, his faith was refined and he was resting in your promises and knowing that your inheritance was a wonderful, excellent, beautiful thing. 
He had much trouble from his, uh, his, his doubting of that, questioning of that along the way. And we pray, Lord, that we would not doubt and question what our God has spoken, that we would go forward in your name. We see, Lord, that there are others who have even more severe troubles like Esau did, who despised your inheritance and chose a plate of food, mess of pottage, as it says in the old version, over your inheritance. Oh, Father, have mercy upon our covenant children, that they would not be Esau's, but that they would be Joseph's, that they would be those who trust you and who go forward for you. And Father, if not Joseph's, that they would be Jacob's, that you will not let them slip away, Lord, that you will keep them and preserve them. We know in both cases, it is your preservation of them. But Father, how we pray that, that we would simply believe and we would walk with you. Well, Father, thank you so much for the beautiful inheritance that, that is ours, that we can live in your house forever and ever, completely cleansed of our sin, and in the time to come, as those who are perfectly obedient to you when you have perfected us at the last day. We thank you for those words that when we see our Savior, that we will be like him because we will see him as he is. And those words in Romans that says we've been predestinated to be conformed to the image of your Son. And the words that Jesus said that we will behold in glory the love that you had for your Son from before the foundation of the world and that we will be partakers and even participants in the expression and exercise of that love. We will be loving that way in that day. And we thank you, Lord, for that glorious hope that we have. We pray that you would hasten that and you would bring it about, Lord, that your kingdom would come and your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. For yours is the glory and the kingdom and the power forever. And it is in Christ's name we pray. Amen. Please be seated. Let's prepare now to come to the Lord's table. Receive the blessing of the Lord our God. May the Lord rescue you and deliver you from the hand of foreigners whose mouth speaks lying words and whose right hand is a right hand of falsehood. That your sons may be as plants grown up in their youth, that your daughters may be as pillars sculptured in palace style. Amen.